So welcome to Everything Went Black podcast. I'm here with my dear friend Ian Alexander at the uh, Eat Media offices. Uh, Eat Media is a company that Ian founded. So um, I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in, uh, for leaving good comments on iTunes. Really appreciate that. So if you're interested in following me on Twitter, you can reach me at Mike Hill HQ. So uh, Ian, first question I got for you is, uh, you know, what exactly is Eat Media? <laughs> <laughs> uh, digital agency uh, focused on content, and uh, yeah, it's you know, it's funny everybody talks about Eat and you guys do food, and and uh, I wish that that uh, there was uh, some cooler analogy than that, but. Everybody calls me E, and you know, the guy that I started with was named Tom, and it was just E and T. That was kind of it. And uh, since then, we've changed the uh, definition of that to uh, evolve and transcend, which kind of fits uh, kind of my lifestyle and uh, and the agency as well. So, evolve and transcend. That's one of the things I've always sort of admired about you, because um, you and I have met actually probably close to 20 years from at this point sure, yeah. back, um, back when we were both living in Boston and, uh, you're a native of Boston, right? Yep. Yeah. I, uh, was born in actually Plymouth, Mass, Plymouth Rock and, uh, grew up mostly in Boston between the South end and, and South Boston. And then, uh, high school got kind of, uh, remarriage kind of thing, moved to the burbs and I, I didn't last that long. Back on my own, so uh, yeah, I, I grew up there. Done everything I can to get rid of my accent, but uh, mo- mostly gone at this point. Definitely mostly gone, yeah. <laughs> but uh, like most of the people I know, I've met most most of the, my friends and associates and acquaintances acquaintances all through playing music, and that's that's how you and I met back in like the mid '90s in Boston. Yeah. And, uh, Early, probably early 90s, yeah. Early, yeah, early to mid-90s, and you were playing in a band called Big Red Crush. Yeah, we were in an awful band, and you were in a cool band, um, but yeah. <laughs> That's debatable, man. I mean, I don't know if you know Jay Bennett, the guy who writes for Decibel. He was around back then. For yeah, a while. yeah, Him and Mark Thompson. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, they like to bring that up in, like, really uncomfortable Spots, you know, because uh, that they were in cool bands, or that you oh, were no, in cool no, bands. Like, not, not the fact that Otis, <laughs> the name of the band was Otis, was uh, was they, to me, it's not to be under for under debate whether or not that band was cool or not. Because for <laughs> me, it was definitely not one of my you know prouder moments. I mean, I'm proud of everything the band did, but creatively, it really wasn't something that I'm you know front and center with. But Bennett and Mark Thompson, because uh, a lot of times. Uh, Jay Bennett's called on to interview me for, you know, whatever. Yeah. And he likes to drop that in as a question about like my old band because he knows it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't, I didn't mean it that way. I mean, you know, the, the funny thing about that, just to, that tangent, just for the, you know, the music scene back then, is, you know, you had like all those kind of like light rock bands and, and, you know, it was like all the music. We were just talking about this the other day, like, you know, 89 to like 93 is just this like awesome era of music, you know, and, and, uh, I think, you know, we won't go too far into it, but I think the wellspring of what you were doing in that particular band, while it had similarities between the kind of poppy scene that was going on, it was like, you could see that that wasn't really where you were headed. You could tell that that was a trampoline for you to do something else, you know, versus I think a lot what everybody else was doing was like 
right in the pocket, you know. And I'm sure for you, knowing the other music you've done, it was really in the pocket for you, but it actually stood outside a, a little bit of what everybody else was doing, and I think that that was cool. Yeah, I like to think that, you know, I mean, back on, let, let's just kind of, I guess, go expand on this a little bit since we're talking about it. But, I mean, you know, Boston and probably other cities in that era, I mean, you got you got to paint a picture because, I mean, there's a lot of people who are listening to this who probably were still, like, you know, in grade school in, like, 93 or something like that, you know. Crawd, you know, Dazzling Killman, La Gratona. Yeah. Um, God, there's just so much amazing, amazing music going on back then. But the, the main thing, though, was, like, in the early 90s, it seemed, because bands like Helmet and Nirvana and whatnot were, were on major labels, that suddenly people who may or may not have ever thought about being in a band that could somehow support them financially now have these sort of delusions of grandeur where, you know, oh, yeah, man, um, I could be in a band and become, like, a rock star and be on MTV and, like, you know, buy, you know, buy a house or whatever on music. So I feel like, you know, I'm not going to name names, but in the 90s in Boston, there were definitely bands who had this sort of careerist, like, idea, and oh, I think yeah. it shaped a lot of what they were doing musically. Uh, and some really great musicians too, like, yeah. you know, that, that ended up doing cooler things that I think went down that road. And, you know, Hey, I, I'll be frank. Like I had, I had never really been in an organized band growing up. Like I didn't grow up playing music and, uh, somebody was like, Hey, you can sing. And, and I joined that band, you know, getting to a little what you're talking about. For me, it was just like, that was a challenge. Right? It was just like, I don't know anything about this. And, and I kind of love that as an intro to doing anything, which is just like, I don't know shit about this. Is, and, and that was how I went in. And, you know, strangely enough, I don't know if you know this, but, but Brian, the reason why I quit was Brian came over to our house with a magnum of wine. He worked like a wine distributor. This is Brian, my old drummer. You're Brian. Old Brian, your old drummer. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we were like hooking him up with, I think it was a blind date, is a little fuzzy information here, but nine, he, they toured with the Ramones for a while. Yeah. Right? And they opened for them. Oh, we, my, my old band? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. And he yeah. came, he'd just come yeah. off tour. Mm-hmm. And we had a spaghetti dinner at my loft in Southie. And I remember I was like, so Brian, what was it like? You opened for the Ramones. And I'll never forget this. He said, uh, he's like, we played the same songs in the same order. Like show after show. Some paraphrase quote of that. And I went to practice and I quit that night. That was it. I was just like, I, this light went off in my head. I was like, I'm done. Yeah. That was not what was it for me. Like I, at that point, was writing most of all the songs. I couldn't really play guitar. So I'd sit in Bronx and be like, is this what you're trying to play? And I, but I was coming home and listening to like, you know, Can and Slint and, and playing this like watered down like Soundgarden stuff. So it was like, it was, a, it was a part of me that didn't feel really right anyways. It was like I took the challenge on. But yeah, so you're, you're, you're forever kind of linked to that anyways. That's fine, man. You know, I mean, Brian was right, though, about the Ramones. You know, not only did they play the same songs in the same order every night, but they also said the same things between every song, you know. And it was like, you know, for example, um, I I don't want to tarnish the memory of Joey Ramone or Johnny Ramone or any of those guys, but, like, I feel like in 19, whatever, 95, whatever time that was, like, you know, for them, it was a job and there was this whole infrastructure of people that surrounded them that depended on them for a living. You know, they had like their, their tech, their sound guy, you know, their, their uh, merchandise guy, like everyone was like, 
you know, probably, you know, other, under non, non tour related people, like, you know, lawyers and managers and whatnot that were depending on them to show up every day and play these songs. So, you know, I mean, it, it was definitely, cause I saw the Ramones in the eighties when I was a young kid and it was a totally different experience. than when I saw them, when, you know, 15, 10, 15 years later when we toured with them and, um, yeah, you know, it was one of those deals where before they did Pet Cemetery, you know, it was just like, I heard this place was built over an old cemetery, you know, and like, same night, you know. Cheeky. A funny thing happened to me on the way to the show tonight, you oh know, like God. the same kind of trip every night. And I remember at one show in some city, it was like, I was watching them do their encore and like Joe Ramone, they just finished, you know, this big, the last song of the encore. You could see in his face, he was just like, fuck it. Didn't care anymore. He's like, all right, we're done. I'm going to go back to my hotel room and like watch cable or something right. like that, you know? And, uh, you know, it, it was kind of, it, it was excellent and it sucked at the same time. Like it was great. You know, the Ramones along with Black Flag and, you know, Circle Jerks and bands like that, you know, the Bad Brains are, are some of the, um, you know, inspirations for me to even play music, you know, like the simplicity of the Ramones music sort of, um, enabled me to be creative on the guitar because at the time I was listening to like Led Zeppelin and Rush and Black Flat or Black Sabbath and all those bands where you actually had to know how to play. Right. But then you hear like, you know, Johnny Ramone like rip like four chords together and suddenly that counts as a song. Yeah, yeah, know? totally. So I mean you go from that and then, you know, it was great. You know, we got a chance to, to travel and like, you know, here and there we got to talk with some of the some of the guys individually. Um but on the other hand, it was like, okay, man, this is like the future of, of sort of that punk rock like world, you know, and like punk rock that has not seemed to have aged well. You yeah. know what I mean? Unfortunately. The bad brains paradigm. Yeah. You know, just like seeing that when, you know, back in the eighties and then seeing it maverick and then seeing it after that, you're just like, wow, I just want to live in a world where. I, I can even listen to I and I, you know, and like the other singer for a little while and still just like, it's okay. But like, then it just goes farther and you're like, okay. Or the quickness. I mean, like, you know, it's just like you, you start to lose context a little bit, you know, of like what it was and what it became. And then that's the difficult part of art, right? The difficult part is like making a fucking living, you know, I mean, it is pushing boundaries and, and, and balancing your wants and your needs. Right. I mean, so many, so many people want to break all the rules and, and still have three TVs and two cars. And, and, um, you know, that's the, that's the fight, you know, that's the struggle is like, how do you do that? And I think, you know, um, you know, I mean, I live in a really great neighborhood right now. I think for me, it's just constant reinvention, constant reinvention, just flush it all, just try it again, try it a new way. Like when it's said and done, you know, I get to tell like now my four kids that, I did this and this and this and this and this and this and, and, and I don't have to kind of, and I get other people to tell that story too. They're like, I knew Ian when, and I meet people in such different contexts. My wife, she'll meet people, you know, who are like, you know, MIT guys that I worked with and be like, Oh, Ian was this, that, and the other. And then I'll meet like old friends like you and, you know, or a friend of mine, Tony Tedesco from like, you know, just like around town Boston. And it's like, I love being like this cog that I can kind of plug in because the, the content of who I am is not really important. It's the kind of philosophy of who I am or who, or who I try to be. At least that's important to me. Yeah. 
One of the things that I think, I think a lot of people in general, I mean, myself included, is feeling sort of uh, in our lives that, uh, you know, reinvention is sort of in closed off or trapped in a certain role or a certain job or, you know, some sort of limitations that people have uh, either placed on themselves or feel that society or their communities have placed on them. So, I mean, when, I, when, I, when, I, when you and I talk, because there was a period of time where we really were sort of out of touch, and I remember you were in Europe or something, you were working in with some sort of painting reproduction thing. Oh right, yeah. And then you came. You and I started, you know, hanging out again in New York, and you were writing a novel. Yeah. And then, but and, and there was a whole section of your life that I didn't know about that you you know you were involved in some in the financial industry. Yeah. So I mean, what is it that has enabled you to sort of break out of the sort of box that people put themselves in? Um. Well, I guess one set would be what influenced me, which is just like a shitty upbringing. That was definitely part of it. But, but you know, I could tell that story. But I think the thing that now today or that allows me to kind of do that is, is I've always just um, – I won't say I've never backed down from a fight, but I, I really don't like backing down from a challenge. And, like, you know, there's a line from, you know, Russian novels. It's like, one should not dodge one's own tests. And I, I just always – keep that in my head like it once you have that line that that's like i wonder if i can do that it becomes really hard for me to let that go it becomes really hard for i mean i started this this agency more or less based on like kind of something that uh britta my wife's uh bosses or somebody said in her office which was just like oh having an agency is super hard and you got to really know what you're doing to do this and like in the back of my head there was this little like fuck you like I can do that, you know, and I don't always get it right, you know, but I think there's just this, I'm not afraid of losing. And, um, I don't know when you get beat up, it's not that bad. Like you realize like you got your ass handed to you. You know what? You didn't die, you know, and, and, and you, you're okay. And I think like having that shitty upbringing about all that and getting through all that, um, just like made me realize like if I can get through that, I can get through anything. You know, so I think that there's that element of which is the fearlessness element, and then the um, the different the different kind of sections of my life have, have just really been based on kind of seeing how other people live their lives and um, realizing like you know how many times you've been to Europe touring, right? It's just like you realize how big the world is, and maybe you get the chance to go to Iceland or Reykjavik or here, but I get to change like. In the United States or wherever I live, I can wear a different set of glasses every day, you know. And I think um, another story about that was like, so when I was in high school, I like played on the football team and I played in the basketball team and I was on like independent study art and I was kind of academically talented. And like, I don't say that as a pat on my back. It's like I didn't fit in with any of those crowds. The jocks thought I was a nerd. The, 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 the jocks used to call me fag in high school. I had pink hair and I just didn't denied it. I was just like, fine, I'm a fag. Fuck you. Um, so I, I didn't really like being in one group. I was always fascinated. Even back in the rock days, I, I used to get insulted that when people were like, yo bro, what's up? How you doing after the show? And I was like, I don't know you. This is, this, this fucking scene doesn't define me. I'm going home doing some other stuff. And 
probably chip on my shoulder back then about it, but gr- growing older, you know, I realized that it's just like, I just don't want to be defined. I don't want to, I don't want it to be over and be like, you know, that was it. And you know, some people say, you know, Jack of all trades, master of none. I think whatever works for you, that's what gets me up every morning. You know, we got so many sunsets and sunrises and that's what, that's what gets me up every day is knowing that I have the ability today or tomorrow to say, fuck it. Like I can start all over again. And it's the fearless. I think the fearlessness is in like doing it. We moved back to New York in 10 days, went on vacation, saw our friends. And you have those moments when you're, where you're tuned into that other channel, which is just like, you know, what's right. And, and there are these, these subliminal cues and there are these real cues. And, and, and you go, I need to do that. And we don't, we don't act on, we're afraid there's, ah, oh, there's, I got to move out my apartment. I got to do this. And how am I going to transfer? It's all bullshit. You just, so you just do it. And I've just made a living out of kind of like doing it. Like we literally called up and we're like, found a place to rent. And, uh, uh, I, I got a car and I drove 10 days later, I moved my whole family up and it was just like, we don't do, we could, we could drag this out for months. Yeah. We could just do it. Yeah. You know, Taking that step though is what stands. A lot of people will, justify reasons why they don't make these changes and then next thing you know like a year goes by and they're still in the same position i'm not saying i haven't done that either i just think i do it a lot less than everybody else yeah i mean that that's the thing it's like the, the, it's not necessarily that you live this 100 percent all the time correct thing but it's like at least skewing in the right direction you know and that that's something i've been trying to do as well you know and it, earlier you were saying about not fitting in i mean where where we're sitting right now is essentially the set the area of New York where I grew up. Okay. I spent my formative years in like Putnam County, which is like just north of here. So I came down here from visiting my folks. You know, so I've been spent like the last like you know night or so just driving around and like you know oh yeah this is where I used to go to go to high school. You know, right. remembering all those other things about not fitting in, but also I feel like that is probably a strength though because you don't not being comfortable. And putting yourself in uncomfortable situations are really what forces growth and development of certain, you know, different skills and skill sets and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, the best thing you can do is is, is teach a kid how to learn, right? The rest yeah. is bullshit. Like, don't teach them math. Just teach them how to learn, I think. And I went to Montessori as a, as a younger kid, and I think that that helped a little bit, you know. But just, like, the ability to just process information and weed out the bullshit from the stuff that's really going to kind of take you somewhere or allow you to kind of grab onto, okay, those five things are not important. That's key to kind of taking the next step and, and, and moving forward. But yeah, I think, you know, to your point about, you know, being an outsider to somebody who's a great book, you know, Colin Wilson, the outsider, it's like a killer book. And, yeah. uh, you know, there's just, there's something to, um, I don't know, I probably said this before, but when you're younger, you know, there's this fuck you and it's sharp and it's pointed and it's, it, it's this kind of like, it comes at you, fuck you. Yeah. And you get older and it's just, you lean back when you say it, you go, fuck you. Right. You just like, you're like, I don't even need to engage. Right. It's just like, fuck you. I don't believe in that. You're playing solitaire, you know? So I think that there's a, there's some growth. There's some growth there that happens a little bit from, from one to the other. Yeah, we're good. I just want to check the level here. Um, but I love that. I mean, that outsider status, I think, you know, it has its benefits. Um, 
and, and, and I think, you know, certainly a hurdle as I've gotten older and now having kids, like, you know, that's something that I'm trying to, I'm trying to teach my kids, like, you know, my, my oldest, I, my oldest son is, is four and three quarters, as he likes to say, Isaiah. And, um, I always see him and he's doing stuff and he's like, you know, Hey, look at me. Hey, look, I'm doing this. And he wants attention. I'm always walking over. I'm like, bro, well, I don't say bro to him, but I'm like, just, just do it and do it better than anybody else. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about who's looking. Who cares who's looking? Just do it, you know? And like, and, and you fall in love with it. Don't fall in love with it. Cause other people are, are, are looking at you falling in love with it. And, um, it's such a, it's like, I learned all those lessons because of that outsider status. So how do you kind of engage? It's this weird thing. It's like having sons, especially is like, you get to rewind all this stuff. And it's like, how do you, how do you get to the good lessons that I feel like you got to without preaching or without kind of putting you in a, a situation where, where you have to assume the outsider status that I had? Cause that's not fair. Right. You know, I mean, I just yeah. want you to have a cool life and do whatever you want to do and roll with it, you know? Yeah. But there are definitely, I mean, you know, I'm not saying I came from, I, you know, my parents, did the best they could raise me and they did a good job. And I'm not saying that I had like, you know, a, uh, you know, a bad childhood by any stretch, but also I do kind of wish like they could have given me a couple more tools in my toolbox to kind of work with the way the changing world was. Because I mean, when, when you and I were kids, like our, you know, different, totally different world, oh, yeah. no internet, you know, I mean, that's a major thing actually, you know, but also just the, the world is a, is a smaller place now than when it was when you and I were kids. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're, you're very, your career is based in information exchange, yeah, totally. you know, worldwide. When you and I were growing up, it was, you know, what you can get in print is yeah. how you got your, your information. You know, there wasn't any live streaming, you know, webcasts or, you know, anything like that, you know. Back at like skater magazines I felt like was like where I got like some of my formative knowledge yeah. you know what I mean for at least like arts and culture and stuff yeah. like that that was like the best thing but you know I, I, to, to your point about like the internet I, I remember the day MTV came on and like all my friends were at like somebody's house who had it and I remember lasting like two videos because being inside when we grew up was called being grounded yep <laughs> Watching TV was you were fucking in trouble, like, and you couldn't go outside. It didn't matter if it was snowing, if it was 80, 90 degrees out. It didn't matter if it was pouring. Like, you were shoveling the basketball court off. You were at the park. You were, like, at your friend's house listening to music, but you weren't, like, sitting inside staring at a TV. I mean, that's just insanity. I didn't even have it until I met my wife. I didn't even own a TV. You know, it was just, like, that's it, it, insanity. And now, you know, we try to limit our, our kids, kids watching and television, but it's just, like, there it's just it's a it's a whole whole different world and, and that networked part of life the weird part of that is that we're the same thing that 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 i disagree with about the artistic lifestyle which is sometimes that you sacrifice the relationships that are very close and dear to you for the the adoration of people that you've never met right so you just basically like squirrel away from your family and from your girlfriend or from your best friends in order to do this thing that you can then present to people you've never met before, right? And that's yeah, not a bad, that's not a bad I, thing. I don't know if that's exactly true, though, because, I mean, I know personally, for me, I for me, creating something, I get absorbed more in the creative, in the process of creating something, and when I'm done with it, I don't, I, it's almost like, 
when, when you're done, it's almost like the feeling of like when you, you, you come home from vacation or something, you know what I mean? Right, like, right. Wow, that's, you know, totally. that's over with. Like, but, and at that point, the record hasn't even come out or the recording hasn't even presented to people and I'm already way past the next, into the next thing. So for me, I think, and I, and I think this is common with a lot of people who are, either, you know, painters or musicians. And yeah. I'm not saying that what I do is like art or any kind of accomplished thing, but, you know, for me, it's the, the process of taking an idea like something from the imagination, which is like, you know, ethereal, like it's amorphous. It's not, it's a formless idea that exists somewhere. And we could talk about where that's somewhere. Is right, too. right. But some kernel of an idea, and then you manifest that in reality. That's the whole experience for me. Not necessarily like, okay, the record. It's nice to have the LP on the colored vinyl and whatever. Yeah, and yeah. The cool artwork. But, but that, at that point, I'm already way finished with it you know I think that that's a sophistication that you have and I think that a lot of people do have but I can also thank a lot of people who like are complete fucking dickheads to a lot of people they know and that that creative process maybe that's a personality trait of somebody I mean if you're gonna create you know that, that's, a, that's a choice in life when you're gonna make art right like there's a part of you that says I could do it better or I could do it my way right that's a part of the creative kind of process um, but I found at least especially for me too, that the choice I was going to have to make when I pursued super creative endeavors, yeah. I was, and this is my personality, my experience. I had to tap into a place where I was not likable, liked or liked myself. Like I kind of turned into like a violent mean prick and, and, and I was able to out of that pool of energy, do some cool stuff but then it was like, well, what, what am I sacrificing? What for? And I guess I, I've seen that in other people. But for the most part, yeah, I have to speak for myself in that, uh, that that's how, kind of how, how it manifested itself for me. You know, it was just like, well, why am I fucking doing this again? You know, I went through all that bullshit and all this work to, to, so that somebody else will read this. Like where I have these people who are willing to support me right here and like, man, why are you such a dickhead? Like when you're doing your work, you know? So, you know, yeah, that's not, uh, it's certainly not across the board, but, but I do think it applies. Yeah. uh, Point taken. So writing, writing. I mean, I was, that was pretty much all I ever wanted to be. I think growing up was, was, uh, you know, I I have a friend who, who was like, you're always writing your own story and you're always redoing your spaces. And I think that that's a good like tombstone. Like, you know, it's just like, I've always wanted to rewrite my story and I, whatever, wherever I am, I want to like create it. I want to like curate like whatever loft I'm in, whatever house I'm in, whatever, wherever I am, it needs to kind of like be redone. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, I was always just kind of like a voracious reader and uh, I started writing when I was pretty young and, and, you know, I was kind of advanced in that creative writing for, for school. Um, I actually came to New York on two things. One, I had like a little bit of a a writing teacher uh, here kind of program and uh, worked with him for a while and uh, also was working on a startup at the same time. Um, Yeah, it's just, you know, it's funny that originally originated from I went to mass art for a while and I was yeah. actually doing sculpture 
and I did this like really big sculpture wall of, of, of words. And I, and I started, got really wrapped up for probably like a year and a half or two years maybe of like, what would if look like? What would but look like? Like, and what material would it be? What kind of like back to like amorphous, like what's if, if is this possibility? Yeah. Like, would it be made out of metal? Is it water? Is it rock? Is it wood? Like, if you had to give these 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 like words like the like texture and, and yeah. a three dimensional kind of like uh, uh, substance in them, like what would it be? Would it have dark matter? Exactly. Yeah. It would be, yeah. it's, it's kind it's of quark, the same like, the same way that dark matter is a sort of undetectable thing. Like the is like a sort of interstitial fascia that joins all these words together. Totally. So how would you manifest it? Like yeah. if you had to give it like a definition, and then. I think I, that was probably like the last really big art project that I think I did some painting for a couple more years. I was a so-so painter. Um, but then I just got stuck on the words. And then uh, me and a, a buddy of mine's brother from high school is actually the only person I still talk to from my high school. Uh, he's like four or five years older than me. We started this like uh, this magazine and uh, the first issue did somebody like gave us like I forget what it was, like 12 grand or 10 grand. I thought it was really good. Back then, actually. It was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we had some places, some bank account is still sitting there. Like, they were like, oh, we'll put out an issue someday. And, like, we just kind of, like, it was mostly poetry at that point, short stories. And, um, so yeah, I, I got really kind of, you know, I got really into Beckett. I got really into kind of, like, postmodern fiction. And, and you know, then kind of tried to tame it back a little bit. But, it's pretty much where I got stuck. I mean, I, I finished the finished the first book. Now we're super fast forwarding, but I did a bunch of short stories and got a good amount of stuff published. Um, and uh, wrote this, started writing this book. I mean, now we're going back fifteen years or so. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of a mind fuck of a book in in how it relates to reality. But the book is basically called A Funeral and a Fly in a Wall, and uh, basically it's a story about kid gets a phone call, his grandmother dies, who raised him, and he goes down to kind of go to the funeral. And on the way down to the funeral, it, it, throughout this process, he he is given a book, and in that book is every word that was ever spoken about him when he wasn't there. And he's also given the responsibility of that we all have our books, and should everybody get their book? Like, do you really want to know what everybody said about you? So it really gets to the heart of, like, we say we want the truth, but really not. We're just not fucking set up for the truth. Um, so the funny part of all this whole book fast forwarding is like, is this big tension between the mother and the grandmother and lawsuits, all the shit years later comes true. So it's like, I pretty much manifested that book, which is fucking weird. Like, yeah. And I have a lot of like weird serendipity like that. Like I go to the same vacation house uh, with my kids that I went to as a kid but different people own it completely randomly. Like one of my friends got married and his parent, his, the, the wife's parents bought the property after my parents who were like druggy, like motorcycle freaks got kicked out of it. They just happened to buy it. So I'm staying in the exact same house that I used to stay in as a kid. Wow. And the first time I drove down, we were talking to the girl and she's like, yeah, I grew up in Brookline and da da da. I used to go to this place cape and and uh, i was like oh yeah i used to go to cape too she's like why don't you come down we're talking about what it looks like i drive down there and I was with my wife and i was just like this is the same fucking place i was like i was like this used to be over here i knew more about the property than they did 
straight up crazy. And I like why why ever they've left me down here and they haven't taken me yet of all the chances they've had, like it's for weird stuff like that, man. I just have so many things in my life like that that are just fucking weird. Um, but then, so anyways, I, I did that book, long story short, my wife was a literary agent. I had to write it from third person or first person and I got it to the point of like whatever I was going to do with it and I was just so frustrated with it. So now writing uh, another book um, where it is based on uh, uh, a bird for every person and basically talks about I had I had a dog at a big Rottweiler in Boston if you remember yeah, Zoe and uh, that, that dog taught me a lot just about responsibility and, and how to love something that that, that uh, just depends on you and unconditional love and um, but in the Bible like um, animals are like the sins of man so they don't go to heaven so like I didn't know that yeah so like they, they're part of here so they don't they don't, they don't go to heaven so basically, the book is that that the birds, the doves, get to basically fly near God, like to fly close to God into the heavens their whole life, and um, but they don't get to go there, and that man gets to go there, but is on the ground. So in this thing, every person is attached to a bird by a string, and the only time they can unlatch the bird is at home or at work, and they have like these certain kind of like certain knots that have to be tied. It's just kind of like the way the world kind of works. Um, so I'm hoping to finish that by like the end of the year. It's a little bit of a, you know, it's a tri- it's a tricky one to pull off. It's not a ton of dialogue and like, but it's super fun. I'm having a ball yeah. with it. Having a ball with it. The um, is it, is your work still in print? Like stuff that's been published so far? Yeah. Or you yeah. can you can type in Amazon like Pro- probably uh, type in like Faring, which is my old last name, which I've pretty much disposed of. Right. But like, it's not under Alexander. I changed so when I got married. I I changed my last name just to basically, it's on me. Right? If I fuck this up, like my kids, I can't be like, oh, you had a shitty childhood. Da, da, da. It's on me. It's my last name. Like, turn and look at dad. If he doesn't make this work, yeah. it's on him. So, and I, you know, I kind of like that pressure. So yeah. are you still, like, if you, this next piece that you have, is that going to be published as Ian Ferry or Ian Nah, Ferry? Ian Ferry's dead. All right, so this it's is a like dead a human being. New, clean slate. Totally, yeah, I wiped that board clean, man. It just, Where like, did Alexander come from? It was my middle name, so I have no last name. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. My, um, the last guy on the podcast, Peter Ferris, he's a, he's a writer. Um, you know, he, he has a book published uh, called Last Call for the Living. It's like a crime huh. fiction kind of thing. Um, so how do you find like like the publishing world? He he, you know, it sounds to me getting things published is exponentially harder than being in a band and trying to find a label to put out your material. Oh yeah, I mean our office in Soho, which we're closing soon, is uh, we share it with a literary agent, and um, he's had like multiple New York Times bestsellers, and and uh, was actually Paul Bowles' agent for a while back in the day. Um, Ned Levitt agency, they're like. Pretty much they own the spirituality, self-help, and he did a lot of cool stuff before that. Not that that stuff isn't cool, but he did a lot of like, true fiction, like weight to it. Did the last shooting of um, Marilyn Monroe, the one where she's got like the, oh, the okay. star and everything. Yeah. He owns that. Like He's got some really cool stuff. Um, you can't fucking write a book for anyone. You just have to love the words yeah, and want to share it. I think for me, whereas the passion before was like I was very willing to live in a loft and, and, and kind of like 
barely get by and, and not have relationships with anybody and just write and go for that. And I think probably 15 years ago, you could do that. You know, just like back in the 90s, you could be a fucking shitty band and get a $250,000 demo deal. Sure. Right? So, whereas now, I think there's actually some purity to it whereby, um, you know, the way it literally works now, because Britta was an agent, is like you almost have to have your own following. That's, that's what I've been getting at. It's, like the, it's yeah. just like the MySpace yeah. thing. Where it's like, well, I already have 40,000 followers. But then at that point, I don't fucking need you. You know, it's like the, the Louis C.K. or whoever name, whatever, yeah. where you're just like, well, I'm just going to sell it myself then. And I think now we're, you, know, you can look at all that stuff. Oh, publishing, it's terrible. And the music, it, it's terrible. And it's just like, yeah, but if you have the balls, man, you have all the tools. Like, it just got DIY at the ass. Yeah. Like, you just got to fucking not be afraid. I mean, it, what's the, the easy way out was, you know, rent a practice space for 300 balls a month and, you know, the singer can barely buy a new microphone and then try and get, you know, make up some t-shirts because your friend's girlfriend works at a graphics place and then try and get a 250,000. Like there's no, no, are you really committed? You're not committed. No, I, it, it's funny because it took, you know, I see, I see like the future of all this creative stuff is like a, a wild west scenario where, <laughs> You just got to go out there and like homestead yourself somewhere. And I like that. I think that's great because, you know, my, you know, Tombs is, is, we're still operating more or less in the old school way of being assigned to a label and, you know, they give you money to record and, yep. you know, but I think that a lot of people talk to I me. Mean, I think I said this in the last podcast too, is, um, you know, you know, Facebook messages or kids I talk to on the road are just like, well, you know, what can, you know, what's a good label for us? Like who, who should we you know, send our demo to, or, or can you put us in touch with people at, you know, relapse or whatever. And I'm just like, you know what, man, like you're right now, you're in a position of power because you don't owe anyone anything. And yeah, yeah. You just, you know, put up a SoundCloud or a Bandcamp and just get your stuff out there to as many people as you can. And if, if you want to, you know, the, it's the real gangsters are going to be the ones who actually tour, get a fan base and control everything. Yep. You know, they're going to be like the Tony Montana's of, <laughs> of like music, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and without hopefully getting shot down by Colombians at the end. But, right, right. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that that's the new, the new wave of the way things are going on. And I think that that's good because, you know, I, I look at our, uh, you know, we get our, our twice a year accounting statement and I'm just like, where the fuck is all this money going? To? Yeah. And oh, okay, here's, here's the itemized list. You know? Yep. You guys get this slave wage of, uh, you know, your, your sharecropper percentage of every dollar that we make and, and the rest goes to keeping the lights on and paying everyone's cell phone bill. And, yeah, yeah. You it's know, the rent on the office. That Albini article from back in the day, you know, it's just like, give me a break on yeah. that, you know? So, I mean, but I guess, I mean, I don't, I know next to nothing about the publishing world. I mean, I... It's the same exact thing. Yeah. This is a great book by Scott Gregory Lavoie that, that Ned represents in, uh, it's called Callings and it's like, it's pretty much what you think it would be and it's a little hippy-dippy kind of spiritual. It's really well written and it's a good book, but you know, I, I know for a fact he got like big money for that six figures and it didn't fucking earn shit, you know? And like, okay, he got to sit comfortably and write that book for however long it took him to do and live high off the hog. And, you know, and I kind of look at that as, you know, and I'm not judging you for taking the money, but I remember like I no. had, I don't know if you remember, I had that art thing called Kaleidoscope yeah. in Boston. Mm-hmm. Totally. So when we did that, it was my, my uh, like constraints for that was you've got to come to every meeting um, and 
you got to pay to be to be kind of in it, like just to kind of join. And at the end of it, I said I gave up. This is what everything costs. Yeah. Right. And uh, you keep all your um, like a lot of it's like oh gallery, and if anything sells, you get a percentage. I was like I don't want anything. All right. Here's the itemized list. I'm going to tell you like what everything costs, and then we're going to do this the right way. Right. Like it's going to be for everybody, and we're we're going to kind of like I just was so anti with this other lady. I forget what her name was, but she was like part of like that uh, A Street uh, consortium for like so basically like I went to four years of art school. I graduated. Now give me $300,000 so I can go make sculptures and hang them and have people from Western Massachusetts buy them. And I was like, you chose to fucking go to art school. It's not cheap and it's not a smart place to get out and make money. Why should I help you get $300,000? I mean, granted, culturally, I understand. But the argument there, when you start to kind of water it all down, is like, well, I chose to go to school for accounting. Right? It's a very functional thing. I mean, arguable like given especially Bitcoin and currencies yeah. and government and what role that has played. That's a game we all decided to play. Yeah. Right? So we're playing that game. And that's a function that that guy doesn't come out and say, give me three hundred grand. He says, I gotta go fucking get a job and I gotta learn the next thing so I can do whatever. So I think like this the, 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 there's the part and I think maybe this even touches on that outsider even within the art the art kind of creative part is I like, just don't ever feel like you're fucking owed anything. Ever. Yeah. Like, I, and that just, I, and I'm almost angry about it. That's something I've always just been like, why do you fucking think you're owed anything? I live behind a dryer for a fucking year and a half, right? Like, I wasn't owed shit. Nobody owed me anything. I was owed, I owed myself to get myself out of that situation. That was the only thing that was owed. Well, I got a theory about a lot of people, are, you know, paint or playing bands or, you know, or write or, or graphic designers or whatever. I think that like 90% of those people never got punched in the face before. You know what I mean? <laughs> And it's like, you learn a lot. I mean, you know, you and I are both fans of, uh, and participants in martial arts training. Yeah, stop making me laugh. Broken rib. Yeah, you got broken (laughs) ribs from last night or whatever. And it's like, but, uh, you know, aside from like the health benefits and the, the, you know, the self-confidence that you learn from that, also the the taming of your ego and learning that you're not owed anything. Just because you show up and you got a stripe on your belt doesn't mean that you can do anything. And that there's likely somebody out there who can get the upper hand on you. And it's just, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And no one owes you a thing. Yeah, yeah there's know? so many people, like, belts at our school that I, you know, you look up at that chart of, like, where am I and where are they? And then you look at them and you're just like, okay, like, you're really far behind. And, you know, I, it, it's hard to be magnanimous, like, and, you know, and not judge. And, but the part for me is just, like, you're showing up every day and you're not giving a hundred percent. Like, like I just feel like you're doing a disservice to yourself. Like, yeah. you know, you're in the same shape you were a year ago, yeah. you know? And, you know, at the end of the day, maybe you went there for some self-confidence and that's, that's not something that, that you necessarily wear on your skin, but like, there's yeah. gotta be like a health benefit and, and there's gotta be a, a part of that that's tied to the physical fitness element of it, you know? Yeah. Um, and I just find that like, like we were saying earlier, it's just like, you know, I leave when the dojo closes, you know, it's just like, as long as I can train, I'm going to train. And like, as long as I, cause that's also opportunity with the whole time, you know, sensei's like cleaning stuff up or like one of the senpais is around and I'm like, Hey, hey, hey. like, 
when I throw a lead right hook, like why, why don't we ever teach that? And why, like, why, how do I underexpose myself from that? You know what I mean? And you don't always get that stuff in class. It's like free. Yeah. You get that little free extra, but it's, it's the hustle, right? That, that, that gets you that, you know, it's like somebody you see that they said to me the other day, like, they were like, like man, you really 45? Like, <laughs> I was like, yeah. They're like, you just don't like stop. And I'm like, Dude, I got 72.5 years here. That's it. Yeah. I don't think there's anything after this. <laughs> that's, why I, that's how I would see it, things, man. We were talking earlier about, like, motivation. I'm like, I'll just fear of not getting everything done by the time I, it's, the lights go out. You know what I mean? Dude, I'm 45. That's If I'm lucky, I live 30 more years. Yeah. Right? Lucky. When my oldest son is in high school, 11, I'll be 57 years old, 56 years old. I'll be almost 60 years old. I had to take fucking corny as this is. I took video of me in Florida when I was still playing basketball at a high level, like against like complete like pretty pretty good street level yeah. like basketball players, just so I can show him like, look, your dad used to be able to fucking play, you know, like completely corny. I'll have to show it to you on YouTube. It's just like stupid. I like literally lit it up because I was just like, what the fuck? I'm gonna have kids and like, what am I gonna? This is gonna be like lame, you know? It just yeah. That's what I'm. I'm amazed by it. It's just like how fast it, you know, even our 20 years ago, like it just seems like fucking yesterday. It seems just like yesterday. And, and part of that, that fearlessness too, for me, is just like, uh, from, from four until certainly until 20, I like had many choices taken away from me. And then from 20, to probably 30 was me struggling to, to make sense of that myself Yeah, definitely. on me. At that point it's fucking, well, it was, it's way on me, but it's, it was really on me making my own mistakes and, and, and based on the other things. I, like, I don't feel like I, I got my shit together until like 10 years ago, you know, even though I was probably doing very much the same thing. I think the the chip on my shoulder is like a lot, like, so, Far gone. I actually, I had to make an apology to uh, Craig from from Owen Evan Witness. Oh, okay, yeah. Because uh, I remember, like, you know, some of those unnamed guys that we used to know. Uh, I put him in a like a pretty untenable situation once out in front of like TT the Bears, and um, he, you know, pretty much had my back. But you know, it was just like, you know, I told him that you know the, the same thing it was just like you know the mistake I made back then was I was more interested in being right than I was doing right. You know? I think that's everyone's case when you're a 24-year-old man. Yeah, know? but, I mean, it's, you get that chip on your shoulder like, no, man, I'm fucking right. I'm right, you know, and, and you realize that yeah, being right being right matters and it doesn't matter, you know, and, and that's a really tough thing to kind of to, to swallow. Yeah, I mean, being right when you're taking, uh, you know, the uh, SAT exam or something is important, but right is almost completely subjective in some ways. Yeah. You know? 100%. Yeah. It's like, okay, it's right for me. Like it's right for me to, uh, you know, to whatever, pick up that dollar bill. I found on the street, but yep. it's right for the other person to come back from around the corner and find the dollar that he lost. Yep. Yeah, totally. You know? So it's like, I, you know, I think in my, in my, I don't feel like I have my shit together at all. However, things like that are becoming clear to me that like, you know, things are like very, like right and wrong and reality and like the sort of what's correct 
isn't a black and white thing anymore. It's like definitely this loosey goosey, slippery like kind of thing that you have to sort of, in a quantum kind of percentages probability way, negotiate your way through the world. You know? A lot, of, you know, it's, this is probably like the, the most family corny like podcast you did because I keep mentioning my wife and my kids so much, but like goofy analogy, but like my wife will like sometimes get dressed and she'll be like, what do you think? Like, you know, and I'm like, how do you feel? Right. Like, and, and I think so much of decisions like that, like the dollar bill, right. It's yeah. like, there isn't a right. There's how do you feel? Absolutely. Right. And for me, it's very much like if I pick up this dollar, if I don't try to find out who this dollar is, I'm going to feel shitty. And like that carries with me those shitty little check mark, like coins in the shitty feeling shitty bucket. I don't like anymore. Like I went through that. I, I douched that bucket and I don't want anything in that bucket. So for me, it's this constant kind of trying to like, you know, not be empathic to a fault where I'm frozen making decisions, which I've also been in that fucking camp, yeah. but in a place where it's like, I got, I, I got to put it in a bucket cause I'm going to feel one way or the other. Like, and, and I may not be able to, you know what I might have to do? I, I might just have to put it back where I found it Yeah. and it's not my bag. Like the world has, the world's got another mission for that, for that challenge. That challenge was not set out for me, right? Because I just couldn't do something with it, right? And 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 that's somebody else's challenge. And the next person that's come by, and the world, the spirit world, or whatever, will take care of that. And somebody else will take up that challenge, and they'll do the right thing with it. So I think it's really realizing that you know that the right one, the right challenges are out there for you, and they manifest themselves, but they're not all yours. And I think that's certainly like a a big mistake in the 20s and 30s like, was made which is just like every moral decision was fucking on me to prove right or to to do right or you know it's just like I'm a total Libra right which is just like if you're fucking doing the right thing man I'll follow you I'll be your soldier but if you're fucking up I will push you out of the way and take the lead and uh, you know for what though right again like part of it's being a control freak yeah. and part of it's like like for the good of what cause and and then the challenge the thing that comes before that is like is this even my challenge to take on yeah. is this even is this even worth my my time am I, am I even helping the grand scheme of things by doing this because it might be somebody else would be much better to like take this on than I would so that's I think a, a part a part of kind of like uh, the world and the kind of experience that, that you know we go through too you know yeah definitely I, I, I've, I've been guilty of being uh, controlling sort of person, you know, and sort of taking, you know, even though I don't, I'm like, oh, I can learn this and be better at this job than anyone else here, but that doesn't necessarily mean I should do it. Maybe like, you know, even like within the band, you know, it's, we, you know, we had some new members, you know, did some lineup changes and, uh, you know, Andrew, our, my longtime, you know, drummer and I are, are, you know, pretty much the core of the band, but, um, you know, there, there are certain things I've learned how to delegate to other people too. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, well, maybe it's not up to me to do all this stuff. Maybe it's better to spread things out and not only to take the workload off from me, but also makes other people feel involved. Hmm. You know, like somehow it's like, oh, okay, cool. Now, I, besides from showing up to practice every day, I have another task that I'm expected to execute. Right. And you get drawn into the fold more. You know? Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, I always saw from outside of you like that, you know, total armchair fucking psychiatry, but like you, that was a place where you could shape everything. 
That's not, maybe maybe like ten years ago. No, no, I'm saying ten years. Yeah, ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying back then, right. and that and that that was what you. But that was that was what you needed at that point in your life to get to the next rung on the ladder. Yeah. Right. You needed that control and that ability to do that to get to to kind of where I, mean, I remember meeting when I lived in up here in Hastings. We had a couple of meetings and like we talked kind of like about stuff like that and just like I remember just seeing that kind of like I don't know. It's just like shifts like in, in people and in. in you know, those challenges that you took on. It's like, that was a challenge that you took on because you needed that stability and that foothold, like to, to build, you know, for the next level to kind of go up. It was like, all right, I can fucking do this. All right, good. Now this next thing comes, you know, like, I mean, I think about probably both of us. It's like, it's so weird how you can't, I mean, I still feel like I'm the same 19 year old kid that I was before. I feel like I'm a little bit more mellow, but I don't really see the, the difference in me, but like, I so see the difference in you. Right, I mean, it's probably yeah, right. it's in the same way, but yeah. it's so weird. Like to think about it, that's like I think of Mike Hill today, and I think of Mike Hill ten years, not so much twenty years ago, but like ten or fifteen years ago, and I'm just like, wow, this is like such a not better, just different, different person, yeah. just a different person. Right. And it's just like that to me is rad. Like I love. It's always so difficult to see people and be like, oh wow, there's Bill. He's like the Bill that I saw before. Like I always say, like when I meet people, like, you know, after I got a couple friends that I've actually said this to, I'm like, listen, man, I want to make a memory. I want to rehash. Remember when, remember when, remember when, remember when. Who fucking cares? Remember when, take a picture. Yeah. Right. Just make a memory. We did that. And you, you know, you always rely on that as a, as a, as a, as a building block to like kind of foster the relationship. But like, you know, I think you and I have always had fucking serious conversations. Like, oh, yeah. dick around. It's like a little bit, oh, remember when, remember that show? But that's five minutes, that yeah. intro. Yeah. And that's pretty much, those are the only people that are in my life. Like, you either want to, like, make a memory and be real or, like, I just don't have time for, for like, small F friends. And I don't have time for acquaintances. Yeah. That, right? that's, an, that's interesting that you say that because I feel that, like, you know, like, I've been really heavily into this whole quantum, like, trip about, like, how your influence, like, you know, quantum particles are influenced by, like, other bodies, you know. Sure. So I feel like in, in in my personal relationships, the same thing. We're just, like, you know, if I want to be, like, a, a forward-moving person, I have to surround myself with people who have that same idea, who aren't hung up on certain things. And, you know, as a result of that, I, I, I wouldn't say I cut them out of my life, but I had to distance myself from certain elements in my life yeah it's like somebody's wanting your time right and you're like i got 24 hours in a day you know and 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 all those like meters of time are not real to begin with and now you want me to fill them with not real moments yeah you know right stuff that's going to drag you out of of the spot that you want to be in you know totally totally. i mean we all i mean i used to be the same way like oh man i hate this i hate that this sucks it's like yeah, but you know what though, man? You know, there are things in life that don't suck and there are things that aren't that I don't hate. And I'd rather focus on those things and the things that I do hate. It's do dorky as hell, but every morning I wake up and I write like, you know, three things out. You know, I write like, you know, uh, what I'm thankful for, um, what I think I deserve, and like what I just want to manifest to come to me. And it's just like, just the act of doing that is, it's just kind of like head trip where I come into work every day and I got a fucking million things I got to do and 
code's due and this is due and I got a phone call and I have to stop and just sit and, and, and not just stress out about, you know, fucking everything, you know, it's like, yeah. I gotta sit and I gotta write that stuff down. Cause if not, the thing that comes in my head is like, I have this one that comes in my head. that's like, remember when it was the 21st of the month and you needed fucking $350 to just pay your utilities and your rent, some shitty apartment or shitty loft you had, my nuts five figures because of the employees. I mean, sure. before I fucking do anything, every month I got to do that. Yeah. You know, and like people are dependent on me. Like, yep. you know, like you got kids and like, yeah. he's got a wife and like, I got to, and like, it's on me and I got to like do all the stuff. So it's like sitting and doing that and just writing that stuff out is like this real kind of like grounding moment where you're like, Again, you made this choice. You took this challenge on. Like, what do you want it to become? Or do you just want to spin? You know, do you just want to, because if you just want, that's when I'm out. When I just know that I'm spinning. Yeah. I'm just done. And I'm like, I'm done. Like, you know, you know, I have like these three things in my life. It's like you have your personal goals, you have your uh, uh, life goals, and you have your business or work goals. And your personal goals are just things that only you can do. Write a book, do a record. It's personal. You don't need anybody else for it. Right. Your life goals are like kind of like the style you want. Like, all right, I want to live in Westchester. You know, I want to be able to take a vacation or whatever. But they're things that that they rec- they're the they're the stage with which things uh, take place in your life culturally. And then your business, or your work is just there to manifest those things. Yeah. And if you can't, if I got to work fucking eighty hours a week to have this life. And to do this, then something's fucked up. Yeah. Then yeah, fuck that. I'm going to move to Nebraska or yeah. like do, do something else where, I, where I'm asking too much out of it. You know, I'm trying to do too much, but I think I'm constantly in that place. And I think that that settle down every morning does that like pretty right for me. That's a good, that's a good exercise, man. I should try to incorporate that because I, I get, you know, you know, think things get intense sometimes. You know? Yeah. And it's just like, what are we going to do today? What are we gonna do today? What are we gonna do today? They always tell you it's task oriented. Yeah, and it's yeah. just like this is crazy. And you know, I mean, there are a million books written about this, and and it, it falls into the kind of like hippy dippy part of it. But you know, to your point about quantum physics, like if you read anything about Sufism, you know, they believe that like the the world's held together by music. Yeah. Like, and it's the notes, it's the harmony that kind of pulls everything kind of together. You know, and you know, I. I I kind of, you know, I like that analogy and it does kind of, it weaves into quantum yeah, a little bit, you know, definitely. but the, uh, you can, it, anybody can spin, right? Spinning is our natural, that's our natural thing, like task and I got to do this and I got to do that and I got to do that. Like you lost, you lost, you get 72.5 years, you lost if you're spinning, you're fucking losing every day you do it, you're losing. And, and I also think, you know, like they say. I used to have a, a boss when I worked at, at MIT that, that every Wednesday or every other Wednesday, he would trip on acid. <laughs> great. That's and, a little too much though, but yeah. Yeah. Great, you know. And he was the most, I mean, he was, he was out there as far as smart, but he was totally normal to have a conversation. Yeah. He was just like brilliant, but he was like reset, 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 you know? And if you, when people get shock treatment, it's the same thing. It's a reset. You know, shock treatment works better than anything. Like for people that have like, those problems. It's like yeah. the one thing that you know will work. It has it's physical things, yeah, but it's like good. it works. And I think to kind of back in the beginning of our conversation and the spinning part is like, 
I love the reset button. I love just saying, fuck it. Well, I think let's just start over, man. Let's yeah. just, let's just flush. I mean, my wife and I have a conversation at least every year we set aside a date and we give each other a couple months beforehand. And then we're like, let's talk about it. And we call it the reset. I'm like, what do you want to do? Like we just had one two weeks ago where we were like, I think we need to live in Europe, like with the kids. And I was like, when? And she was, just, I was like, and for me, I always like five years or a year, you know? And she's like, I, I think it's a year, you know? And I'm like, all right, cool. Like, and you know, I'm very much like I'll fucking research that shit and like next month we'll be there and I'll run the, and I'll be running the business from there or doing yeah. whatever. But that reset facilitates you not spinning because oh, you're because okay. then you're back on like oh, oh shit I gotta I gotta pay attention to where I am versus like it's 62 stops to the G strain and dude I, I mean you know yeah I'm I think humans are a psychedelic creature anyway yeah. like that that whole thing of resetting. You know, doing deep, deep psychedelic explorations or something that we have hardwired into our whole existence. You know, otherwise we wouldn't go on those journeys by eating natural substances that grow in cow shit. Right, right. And uh, yeah, that's that's definitely something that it's it's not part of our culture the way it was in ancient civilizations. Yep. You know, and I think you know maybe dosing everyone in the United States with you know LSD might be a good thing to do. You know. I mean, when, when, you know, it, it's, it's contextual, right? And, and, you know, it's, it's weird. Cause I got, you know, I've had a lot as you, you probably know, it's like, there's a lot of people we know that have had drug and alcohol problems. Right. right. And, um, it's a weird thing to kind of like, you know, we, we have somebody in our family who's got like, and I, that was like where I came from, like yeah. bad drug and alcohol problems in my family. And I didn't get it, you know? And, and, you know, now it's like, I have one, I haven't, smoked the joint and since the last band practice I had, which was like, I don't even know, eight years ago or something like that, seven years ago. And, uh, there's no anything for it. It's funny. Cause like three weeks ago, I, I was talking to Rushkoff and I was like, I think I got to get high. Like, I think like I can just feel it. There's something, it isn't stress. Yeah. It's like, I can feel a reset. Like, and, and I know that there's no sitting on a beach and it's not, I'm already exercising my ass off. Like, it's like you, it's like when you exercise and then you, you know, you circuit train or something yeah. and it's like, you got to do something else because your body knows yeah, that. Yeah, just sort of plateauing. Yeah, yeah, I think like the drug and that psychedelic element, it's just the same thing. Your brain is just in this like, the, it, the treads have worn the ground and like, you know, you wake up every morning and you try to take a different route, but it, it just falls back in the same track. And I think that that psychedelics, you know, and even just the THC, which, you know, it has a, a mild psychedelic element. a mild, yeah, it's a mild psychedelic element to it. It just kind of like erases it. And you just don't know. It just doesn't fall into the tracks like it used to, you yeah. know, because even when I tripped and took acid or, or had mushrooms, um, I never had like a, my rule was like, I never did it with anybody. Yeah. Alone is better. Than Always alone. did it by myself. And it, I, I just never turned it into all right, I'm going to put on music for hit reports. Yeah. You never light the sandalwood. You never like, had the glow stick out. Yeah. No, I was like, all right, I got something I want to think about. Yeah. Or I need to reset. So let me put myself in an environment whereby this becomes that. I think the, the, the other people that kind of do drugs as a social, as a social element, I think that 
That's different. That's hiding. That's more of the alcohol culture taking a hold. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because, I mean, the whole use of psychedelics and, you know, natural sort of consciousness modifiers has always been more of like a sort of shamanistic or where people have intention when they do it. Right. It's not necessarily like it's party down. Like, I feel like once alcohol came on into the picture and that sort of like, you know, post-pagan world or whatever, however you want to call it. That's when this big social escapism really started to take hold of people, you know, and that's when I feel like things kind of got taken away from its original intention, you know. Yeah, last night after I came home from the river, it was like I put ice on it and then I took, you know, four Advil and then I had like three glasses of wine and that's not a normal thing for me to do, but it it was interesting where to me it was this, it fit into that same kind of psychedelic. It was like, uh-huh. this is a solution to the problem I have, right? Sure. Which is, is, is it's a, there was a numbing effect to a physicality, yeah. right? And I think that, you know, especially with alcohol, there's that moment. You've never drank, right? Or no, I've drank, but I'm yeah. not, I'm not, right. I don't typically. Like I have dinner, I have wine with dinner or whatever. But for me, the, there is a time when I go out where this is as somebody who doesn't have a, never had a problem drinking, but there is a time when, when I go out when I'm fucking exhausted and like, you know, kids and whatever. And I was like, you know, can I get you something to drink? And the, the answer is not, the answer is yes, shut this machine off. Right. If that was blow something up my nose or give me a shot or fucking, sing me a song. It doesn't matter what it was. It's just the fact that this one thing is legal. Yeah. And it does that thing. Right. And, and for me, it's like, you can exercise, you can go to therapy or you can do drugs. Like, but for me, they all kind of have like a, a similar thread of like immediate help, intermediate help and long-term help. And they all have different like sliders for yeah. that, for yeah, that. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, and uh, like there's times where like last night that, that one helps, right? Like I was in a lot of pain and it was like, okay, this is going to help in combined with the, with the, the uh, aspirin is going to really help. And there's times when, you know, shit, you've gone, you know, f- four classes, four in a row. And like what, two weeks ago, two, two and a half, two weeks ago, I got 12 hours sleep in seven days. Wow. That's 12 a, hours. Yeah, that's and I made, that's and I made four classes. Yeah like four, three hour classes. Like, and you know, Brett was just like, what the fuck are you doing? You know? And I was like, this is going to provide me energy. Right. Like sure. if I do this, I'll, I'm going to actually have more energy than, than less. And I think that, that it's like kind of knowing what medicine to take. And I think medicine is like, you yeah. know, in big quotes there, you know, because yeah, ultimately what's happening is like, you're releasing some kind of like, you know, like something from Yeah. That's all you're looking for in your, in your bloodstream and, you know, and it's changing your consciousness. Yep. Yeah. First time I rolled like a real legitimate jujitsu sparring session, it was a totally psychedelic experience for me. Really? In the, in the fact that um, it changed the whole way I saw it myself. Like I saw like, you know, like I'd been training for a few months, drilling, you know, learning techniques and whatever. And then I'm like, okay, cool. I talked to my, you know, my, my instructor and I was like, you know, can I, can I move up to the next class and, and, and roll? And I said, oh yeah, I think you're ready. I think you're ready. Call me. So, so like, you know, the following week I was ready to throw down, you know, I went out there and, you know, I figured I knew enough, but I, I hadn't pulled everything together. You know what I mean? 
So, yeah, I got destroyed, you know. I mean, I didn't know how to string the techniques together or how to control my breathing or how to react, you mm-hmm. know. And at the end of it, I was like, I had to, like, rethink my whole plan. I'm like, wow, man, this is, like, the way, this is something that's undeniable. That right. Like, I'm like, can I, can I hang with this, you know, getting, like, choked out by, like, dudes or, like, half my size? Or, yeah. or am I, like, too much of an egomaniac to put myself in a position like that? Right. You know, I mean, obviously, I stayed with it, you know. Totally. Like, but, um, but yeah, it was the same kind of thing. Like the last like heavy mushroom experience I had, I came back and I was like completely sought my life and who I was in a different, different way. You know? yeah. I was like, wow, this is, you know, a completely different way of looking at myself, you know? So I, I, see, I, that, I see that technical element for you. Cause like, you know, we were talking before the start of it, just about how like the grappling part I'm fairly new to, but just how it's, uh. Like, I can see the way your mind works, like, getting really into, like, oh, this happened and that happened. And then, like, yeah, it's like, like I was trying to, like, the same thing when they were showing this technique. I was just trying to count them. I was like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Like, and then being like, all right, how do, how do I kind of roll with that? And, you know, like, uh, we should actually, when my fucking rib heals up, like, roll. And you can sure, beat me up a little bit. Well, my knee has to heal, dude. I told you. My, my, like, whole, like, you know, torn meniscus, cartilage issue. I mean... You know, I've been dealing with that for months, man. And it, I had plans, all these plans coming into the year for, you know, tournaments and stuff. And I had to put it all on hold right now, which is part of, it's going to make my jiu-jitsu stronger because of, uh, you got to react. You got to be like water, man, like Bruce Lee. You know, you, right. you said, you have to react and you have to like conform yourself to whatever the situation is. Right. So my conforming to the situation is I have to, you know, right, I, right, heal. Yeah. I have to heal. Yep. And it's hard because for me, I'm an action, just like you, we're, we're action guys. We like to go out there and do things. Yeah. I don't like sitting around. Yeah. But and I'm, I'm actually at the, like, I'm trying to stay at, I, so I started at, uh, two 13 and I'm like one, the lowest I got was 173. I'm probably like 176, 177 now. That's hard for me to stay here. So keep the weight at that point. Yeah. Cause now like, my, my body wants to bulk up again. Yeah. Like, so it's just like getting muscle, but like I'm trying to stay a little. That's the crazy uh, volunteer fire department. Oh. That is. Amen. Which I almost joined that too. <laughs> Fucking, my wife is like, you have no time. Um, but yeah, this is such a fascination with, you know, I love what you said about there are those little, there are those points in your life, right? And the ones that kind of, you know, they're the ones 20 and before that, that sometimes have value and like hearing your first black flag record or whatever, they're yeah. like massive. And, and it, it's kind of like when they, um, when they do those core samples in the ice, yeah. they'll pull it out and it's just like, Oh, there's, there's when the black flag part, you know, and then here's the whatever part, the parts that are kind of, I think are more interesting are, are the ones that when we started to knock the chip off our shoulder yep. and those ones, like, like when you roll yeah. or, or like, even like, you know, moments that happen to you that, that like everybody would say, Oh, when I have my kid, it changed my life. I wouldn't really say that was a moment for me, to be honest with you. I don't really feel like it changed me at all. I really don't. I, I mean, I feel like I'm pretty much the same. It was actually something I was like, I don't really want to change my life too much. Like, you know, we want to kind of be the same person and not be like those people that, you know, I always like, you know, those people that you're talking and you and I are talking and my phone rings and I'm like, hello. And you're like, oh, hey, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, right? It's like, I don't want to fucking be that guy. Like, whoever calls gets the same email. It's my wife. It's 
told my friends, you get the same Ian. Like, cause yeah. I, honestly, I just don't have time to pretend to be anybody that I'm not. I did that. And, and, you know, there was a, a, a like a two year period in my life where I said, fuck it. I'll be the guy who, whatever you want me to be. And I was just fucking miserable. And I said, never again. I'll just never be that guy. I was around time. I was in that band. I was like, I'll never be that guy. I just like, that was his uh, big red crush. Yeah. Just like, I'll never be that guy. And less to do with the band and some other things were going on in my life. Girlfriend at the time. And just like what I was doing and the direction that I was headed. But, but all of the, the, that band and, and, you know, not being true to who you, who you are and, and that kind of rolls into that fuck you thing right yeah. it was just like I was in between that fuck you and and that fuck you right. like you know this laughter fuck you you know where I like I will still beat your ass but like I'm just not into it like uh, you know I'm, you know I think most of the time you probably saw me back then I was a pretty non-threatening non-aggressive dude you know I, I don't think yeah. I mean I, you know I mean there was a lot of aggression around us in those years yeah you know anyway and I felt anyone who wasn't looking to fight people all the time with someone that I thought was pretty cool usually. Right. That was yeah. just not my trip. But, but yeah. you know, that was also like, you know, all my friends that I grew up with were just like, they're gone. I mean, they're gone. They're just like, I mean, all the kids I grew up with are like, I have one tattoo on my back and it's like my best friend who died. You know, just like, that was it. Like, he died in a fight. You know, it just, that was like a world. That was like direction. You know, and, and uh, you know, I'll never forget like sleeping on his bed when I had nowhere to live and, his parents took me in. I was kind of couch surfing for after I had nowhere to live. I kind of couch surfed for a while, and uh, him. I remember him saying, "I remember we were listening to Neil Young," and I remember him like pulling a like a half joint out from some fucking thing and smoking it and not offering me any, which is kind of <laughs> weird. And uh, but I didn't smoke it. I, and, yeah, but he didn't even offer it to me. So he was just smoking, and uh, and he was like, uh, he was like, "You're too smart for this, man." Like, what are you, why are you hanging with us? You know? And, and I just always kind of resonated with me and I never thought I was better than them, but it just always was like, yeah, where's this going? Like this again, back to like, I don't want to be this. I don't want this to be, you know, I want like life to be a bunch of concentric circles that like, I almost lose touch of all the different me's I was. And that's not escapism. It's just more like, you know, how many times you, you probably in a situation now where you're like, you have some conflict with somebody and it used to be like, no, you're fucking wrong. And, and of course, and, and I, now, you know, at least for me, I can't speak to you, but I imagine it's the same, which is just like, you're like, you wear their glasses and you, and you go, I, I get, I, I see what you see. I still don't agree with you, but I'm going to take the time to see, to see what you see and where, and where your glasses. And I think that the ability to do that on a, global scale where you get to kind of experience different things. I mean, we're all wearing costumes. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, tattoos are a costume, yeah, the suits yeah. are costumes, they're all fucking costumes. So if they're all costumes, yeah. then why not fucking wear as many of them as you can? And, Cause you get to see life from like, you get to see the same situation. You go into a crowd of people with tattoos and a mohawk. You get a, you see something different than a suit. Shouldn't it be that way. It is. So what I say is like, let me, let me try on as many pair of glasses as I can and, and not, not ever not be me, but not ever not forget that it's a costume. You know, I think that manifests itself for, for me being able to kind of be like, Oh, you're a nerdy guy and being really into that and like being on it or whatever hat you're going to wear of kind of 
kind of going for it. Even like the environment we have here, like we got like Rushkoff and like we got like Marco from Tumblr and Seth Godin lives in town. And like, I'm always like, I had one day I pulled up my phone and like, it was like, uh, Seth Rushkoff, a friend of mine who just like sold his company for 50 million. And, uh, I forget who else was, Marco. And it was just like, man, like money wise, like this, like crazy heavy hitters on there and they couldn't be more different. And I just love that. Yeah. Like, I just love that. That again, if, if each one of them called succession, I would answer the phone the exact same way, you know? And, and I feel like that, that is like such a, a mission of mine, the reinvention, but, but at the same time, like the core consistency, consistency, it's just like, fine, you know, put me in an apron, whatever. You still get the same, you get the same shit in an apron. You know, if that makes you feel better, cool. I'll wear an apron. Like, whatever. <laughs> well, I think that's a good uh, parting sort of closure on the whole thing, man. The apron? Me yeah, wearing an apron? Me wearing an apron, man. Fuck. All right. End off on that. <laughs> it's kind of like a gee. Yeah, man. Um, Thanks for having me, Micah. And uh, it was good to see you. It's been a pleasure, you know. Um, so just to kind of close things out, uh, you know, what are the various different websites and, you know, Twitter handles and whatnot that people can, uh, can find you? Oh, uh, so our agency is uh, eatagency.com, and uh, you can see me at uh, Eat Agency on Twitter, which is probably where I'm, um, I'm probably most mostly active. Cool. All right, man. Well, once again, thank you very much, and uh, this is Everything Went Black Podcast, and this is Mike Hill, and you can hit me at, at Mike Hill HQ. <laughs>